on this episode of The James Quandall Show. Uh, Science is never settled, it's only improved. And that should be the goal, and coming to a better and better understanding. And I think conflating science with scientists is very dangerous, because we tend, as a species, to look for salvation and heroes uh, to worship, and then we just get rooted in our camps and we won't deviate from one side to the next. Dr. Brian Keating is the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor at the University of California, San Diego, and the author of more than 200 scientific publications, two U.S. patents, and the best-selling memoir, Losing the Nobel Prize. Keating did research at Case Western Reserve University, Brown University, Stanford, and Caltech. In 2007, he received the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers from President Bush. Keating is a fellow of the American Physical Society and co-leads the Simons Array and Simons Observatory Cosmology Projects in Chile. He's a pilot and honorary lifetime member of the National Society of Black Physicists. But I am really excited to talk with you because one theme that I noticed throughout your book over and over and over again that is something I'm sort of obsessed with is this this curiosity and also, uh, well, you had a definition for scientist in your book in Russian, and it was about being one who was taught. And I just love that because I have this view of scientists as these these super geniuses that just knew things from birth, right? And they didn't have to work at it. But when you go through this book, it's clear that there's a lot of work that goes into these folks' lives and to get them where they are. Yeah, that's a very pernicious, you know, stereotype trope. Uh, I'm offended on behalf of all my fellow scientists. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, It is really true that most people think, well, I'm no Einstein. And uh, by the way, Einstein won the Nobel Prize, you know, 100 years ago this this year. And uh, and so because I'm no Einstein, I shouldn't even try because it's basically futile. Um, But the dirty little secret is Einstein wasn't always Einstein. Do you think when he was six years old? In fact, we know when he was six years old that he wasn't Einstein because he asked his his father, you know, these questions like what would happen if I was traveling alongside a light beam and I looked at myself in the mirror and his dad, you know, he said, I didn't ask that of my dad. And uh, because he wasn't very curious as a kid, at least to ask questions or he didn't ask those questions he credited that with his success because he said, if I had asked my dad, he would have said the wrong answer because by definition, it was only the son Albert that had the right answer 20 years later when he was 25, 26 years old. So he would have gotten the wrong answer, but been satisfied by it because that's, you know, as we as parents know, sometimes the ultimate answer that you give your kids is because I said so, you know, eventually you have to employ that. That doesn't work in science, but uh, it does work in, you know, with kids at some, at to some level. But I often, you know, James, I think you might find this interesting. You know, I often see that as kind of an analogy for also why so many scientists are, are atheists because they do ask those quite like, you know, where is, can you see God through a telescope? Can you, uh, you know, uh, what happens if, uh, you know, I do something, you know, is God watching me all the time? And so the parents will just give an answer uh, because they have such strong convictions and knowledge about their faith or, or, or notions of the existence of God. And so it stops, you know, kids when they later on develop their questions that are much more sophisticated uh, as Einstein would ask much more sophisticated questions as a 25-year-old than a five-year-old. Um, so a lot of them stop thinking about religion critically when they were, you know, five through, in my religion, Judaism, 13, then they just stop. <laughs> and so they're left with a residual understanding at the level of a 13-year-old at best. Most of my scientist colleagues have almost no idea uh, anything in their tradition that they were born into or, you know, kind of uh, thinking throughout the historical, uh, you know, litur- liturgy. It's, it's just completely unknown to them. And so I like to make that analogy that it was sort of good for me that I was uh, maybe exposed to religion later in life and became uh, much more interested as, as a 30-year-old rather than a three-year-old. And, you know, maybe because of that, it's had some benefits to me. So do you think that someone who grew up in a, in a household that had some type of religious practices, I guess we could say, and they ask those questions and maybe they don't get a great answer, but then later they, they look at it and they're like, well, this doesn't really make sense. But it, I mean, at least in, with me in Christianity, there's a lot I don't understand. And I, 
I just accept that I won't ever understand it until I get to the other side. Is that sort of like a cop out answer? Do you think to a scientist like, well, what do you mean you won't na- you won't know now? Like we, you should be able to define it and ex- understand it now. Right. Yeah. So that that's a common you know misconception that you know in in you know that you ever get to the right answer that you you know that there is a right answer. And I you know people always ask me, well, how can you be a religious you know practicing Jew and be a scientist that studies you know the thirteen point eight billion year old universe? You know, when our tradition teaches us, to, you know, this is the year 5782, you know, 5,782 years. Now that, you know, in Judaism, we have all these different levels of explanation. You know how, like, they say that native, you know, native uh, inhabitants of, of Alaska or, or you know, uh, what we used to call Eskimos or uh, are the first peoples in, in, in Canada, they have like 30 names for snow. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, in Judaism, we have like 13 different names for understanding, uh, literally. So the simplest one is called like, you know, the upshot, you'd say in English is it's in Hebrew, it comes from the Hebrew word Peshat. Um, so upshot is like, what's the basic, you know, kind of thing you're trying to convey. So that's like simplest explanation. And, and that often is the right answer. Um, on the other hand, you know, there are much more sophisticated answers as you go up the hierarchy of these 13 different madregas of, of levels of, and I know you've talked to rabbis before on the, on the podcast, so I'm not, not even the most erudite by, by a long shot, but uh, I like to think that I can combine, you know, uh, uh, some knowledge of science with some knowledge of theology and theodicy, et cetera. And that, is kind of my, my, my secret, uh, you know, that keeps me inspired and and elevated, but to answer specifically, yeah, I think, I think you can understand things at a different variety of levels. Obviously the answer, uh, that you give to a kid, uh, or even a thoughtful young adult, or even a, a smart old adult, um, there are things that are intrinsically no unknowable. That's why we have the word faith. Right. If it was all provable, if you knew what was like on the other side, as you say, as we say, you know, uh, when you get to uh, heaven and 120, you know, most people think Jews don't believe in heaven. That's not true. Um, but there's no proof of that. But the word, you know, faith, amuna, uh, mean, you know, is where English gets the word amen. And it means, you know, that you testify to it or you believe in it. But I, as I say in one of my videos on my YouTube channel, I don't believe in gravity. I have evidence for gravity. Uh, and so I don't have, you know, and so asking you, like, do I believe in God is kind of a sophistic question, you know, question, you know, I, I prefer as, you know, I think I heard Jordan Peterson say, you know, does God believe in me? And, you know, can you act in a way that if God exists, and again, to know that God exists is beyond scientific. People can claim that they know, people can claim they've been personally intervened. Um, but, you know, that I think is sometimes fraught because you are asking uh, for somebody to suspend the laws of scientific method, perhaps, in order to um, in order to uh, prove or justify a lived experience, a personal experience. But that involves, you know, if it involves science, you can't just, you know, take take the uh, take the baby out of that bathwater. You you actually have to only only treat things scientifically in my opinion or only treat things in terms theologically or faith-based. Um, I once heard it said actually by a very close friend of mine, a rabbi, you know, well, you know, Noah's Ark definitely did occur. Even scientists believe it occurred. Um, it's just that the carbon, the heat of the flood caused the nucleus of carbon to change. And that changed the carbon dating site. I don't know if you ever heard this. I don't know if it's only in Judaism, but I've heard it in multiple rabbinical sources. And I, I just find that, you know, anathema to what science, in other words, you're using science because you're saying it changed the nucleus, which is, there's no notion of nucleus in the Torah or the Old Testament of a Bible, right? And so you're using carbon dating, which is a wholly new invalid, you know, and you're saying that process, which is scientific, its scientific nature changed in order to comport with this narrative or because of this narrative. And I find that very problematic, you know, just from an intellectual honesty point of view. Um, on the other hand, if you want to interpret it allegorically, uh, that's up to you. But I, I personally think that science and religion are completely diametrically unrelated in many ways, although you can hope to get insight into attributes of God, uh, God's existence from observations in science. And I find that very powerful. And I almost wish that some of my religious friends were much more scientifically literate for their benefit, not, not for like, you know, spreading the gospel, but because it would give them stronger amuna, stronger faith. 
Yeah, and you know, someone said to me before that what's wrong with living as if God is real if he ends up not being? If if you don't believe, well, what's the problem with believing? Like, what's the worst that would happen? You you live through life, you treat people, uh, you know, you, you you do these things. What's the worst that would happen? Right? You know, it's yeah. not a bad way to live, really. That's like um, that's yeah, that Pascal's wager. I talked about that in my first book, losing the Nobel Prize. Um, you know, how the, the you know, wager that Pascal made famous in philosophical circles was, yeah, I mean, the, the punishment for being wrong about the non-existence of God is in eternal damnation, potentially. The punishment for being wrong that God exists is just, oh, you might have wasted some time, some money on a Sunday, you know, or whatever, giving some tithe. But, you know, but then certainly acting as if God exists when God does exist is infinite bliss. So the payoff matrix in the game theoretic sense really weights you towards, you know, acting as if God does exist and living as if God exists. And I think that we would have kind of experienced a paradise, you know, on earth. Um, and if, if people acted that way, even if they just abided by the 10 commandments, it, it would be, it would be a revolution in society. And we only see, you know, kind of a denigration of the, uh, of, of, of society, including, the worship of false idols, which I consider the, uh, you know, cardinal sin. That's the one sin that's like, you can avoid, right? I mean, like you can't avoid, like the first commandment in, in Hebrew is not, by the way, they're not called commandments, they're called utterances in Hebrew itself. So the first one's like, you know, I am the Lord, your God, which I know Christians interpret as, you know, belief in God, but you can't really command, like, if I tell you, uh, James, please don't think about, uh, you know, James Altucher's, you know, uh, hairstyle right now. You're thinking about it, right? Like the surest way to get you to not to think, to think about it is to tell you not to think about it. So um, the commandment of thought is hard, like coveting, like it's hard not to covet, right? You know, you see somebody with more subscribers and more followers. Oh, they got that blue check mark. Well, yeah, that's why they had to make, that's why it had to be a command was because if we just didn't do that, you wouldn't need to be told not to do it, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I, some say the hardest commandment is the commandment to love God, because what does that imply? It implies God isn't intrinsically lovable. You know, I'm sorry to say Jesus might be, you know, I was an altar boy in the Catholic church, as you may know, uh, for many years. And uh, I'm more familiar with, with Catholicism growing up than with Judaism. But, um, but I know that that's, you know, kind of different from the viewpoint of the way that I used to think about Jesus or people do think about Jesus. Whereas in Judaism, because we're command, like, I don't have to be commanded. You don't have to be commanded. You have kids, right? No. You don't have kids. Okay, well, please, God, you should have kids someday. And if you want, you can borrow some of mine. That's funny. That's what uh, Rabbi Lappin said when we were done talking, too, is that he hopes God blesses me with children soon. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. If you're married, you're married, right? We are. Yeah, I am married. Okay, fine. Okay, good, because I, I don't want to get on the wrong side of that debate. Uh, but but the, when you do, I don't have to command you to love your wife, right? I assume you love your wife. Absolutely. That means, like, commanding me to breathe or to love my kids or love a like. You don't have to command something that is in inherently natural, uh, whereas you do have to command something that isn't, namely loving God, but also not worshiping idols. And science in a big, um, you know, in a, in a really concrete fashion, especially in this last year and a half, has been held up as an, as, as an idol, as a religion, with all the trappings, a, a priesthood, you know, holy days, you know, in the case of, you know, scientists, Nobel Prizes often. Um, holy men, women, then there are apostates, there are disbelievers, there are, you know, uh, penitents, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think to deny that is something that scientists do at their own peril, because it makes them look stupid when they deny that they don't actually, even if they're atheists, that they don't have a religion, um, if that religion could be atheism. Um, I think it makes them look like fools. And, and so for that reason, you know, I, I take a more economical, ecumenical approach, which is to say, you know, a scientist should probably be uh, agnostic, uh, but a pra what I call a practicing agnostic, me meaning that we should um, behave certain ways, um, behave as a believing person does while questioning the way an atheist does. In other words, a theist, you know, like an atheist, maybe actually many of them don't question, but, but, uh, and I think a lot of them have very, as I said before, they stopped asking questions at age six, they got six-year-old answers and that sufficed because um, that was easier to accept. Um, and, but on the other hand, I think it is good to ask questions. As, as you may know, the word Israel in the Hebrew language means to fight against God. <laughs> it's, it's totally different than Islam 
you know, Islam means to submit to God. Uh, it's very different to submit to something than to fight or wrestle with something. And we get that from Jacob, whose name was changed from Yaakov or ankle to, to, uh, to Israel, which meant he wrestled with an angel. And that, that symbolically typifies why I think so many Jews are scientists, you know, because they love to wrestle with these big ideas. And historically, that's been the case in the last hundred years, at least, when we were allowed to do it without suppression. Uh, but at the same time, I think nowadays they stop questioning their other biases and their other uh, gaps in their otherwise logical, rational um, attitudes towards the observation of the world. What would some of those other things be? Again, that they have that they have a proclivity, as all human beings do, to uh, to worship authority, to be led, beholden to almost no prejudice. Uh, as Richard Feynman said, the first principle is you have to you can't fool yourself. And the second principle is you're the easiest person to fool. And, you know, that notion of, you know, of complete of skepticism often goes by the way, wayside when we hear people, and I'm not going to get into like talking about the pandemic, but you hear people like Anthony Fauci saying things like, you know, well, if you disagree with me, you disagree with science. Like, no, there's no one person who speaks for science. I'm sorry. Well, he doesn't. What, speak. What's interesting is going through your book into the impossible. It was full of examples of science actually moving farther and, and progressing by people challenging what they were saying. And then that actually raised a level of all of the people involved by having to prove like like that's what worked. I, I don't really want to talk about the pandemic either, but like science is all about debate and raising the level of proof like that. The, if you have a lot of holes in your argument, it may not be sound like it may not be true or you may need to do more work to get it there. Yeah, because science is universal. In other words, we think that the algebra of the natural numbers is the same on Mars, and we know it is throughout the entire observable universe. Um, and so we have a universal applicability of only one domain. You know, it's not like climatology, um, uh, you know, works this exact same on the cloud systems of Neptune as it does here. It's very different. Geology, let's just take a totally absurd. Like the geology of Earth is, is completely and inherently restricted to Earth and, you know, maybe the moon and the sprinkling of Martian rocks. And that's about it. Um, in other words, it's predominantly a one-off affair. And so we can learn a lot about the history of, of, of the, the universe, the solar system from studying the Earth, but you can't learn, you know, specific things about another star from studying just the Earth. Um, so I think it's uh, I think it has so much power and because it has so much power, it can create technology and technology. You know, it used to be like I used to make a joke, like my podcast is apolitical because I don't think there are any Republican constellations or you know, Democratic comets out there. Um, but, you know, but again, the other branches of science, that's not the case. So epidemiology is a branch of science. Um, you know, obviously, you know, climatology, like I said, is a branch of science. So when you have uh, the coupling of something universally, almost universally respected and admired. You know, it used to be the one thing that Congress would always agree on is like supporting Israel and uh, and increasing the scientific budget. But, you know, even now, both of those things are, are coming under question, unfortunately. But but I think it is a uh, it is a net um, it is a net benefit to society to have a healthy scientific discourse, which means including debate. And when you see things like you have to get 99 percent of scientists say this, um, we don't have like a consensus on the the laws of Isaac Newton's gravity. Like we don't need 99. Okay, we got together. 99 out of 100, you know, Bob over there, he doesn't believe in, in Newton's laws. And actually, there are people who don't believe in Newton's laws, and there are the perfectly kosher scientists. But but anyway, you know, nobody says that. Nobody says, oh, well, yeah, DNA, yeah, we, we got together and we now we 97% of us believe. No, that it's only done when there isn't a consensus that they trot out these huge numbers. And science should not have an appeal to authority because, as I point out, you know, in, in uh, other works that I've done. You know, scientific consensus said uh, in the time of Aristotle that there were four elements. Now we know there's 114 elements. Tomorrow there could be 116. Uh, science is never settled. It's only improved. And that should be the goal and coming to a better and better understanding. And I think conflating science with scientists is very dangerous because we tend as a species to look for salvation and heroes uh, to worship. And then we just get rooted in our camps and we won't deviate from one side to the next. So do you think that credit that collaboration in science is we're, we're losing some of that and people are focusing more on criticism of these ideas versus 
I, that was kind of a concept. I think um, you, it was Sheldon possibly in the book talked about the benefits of collaboration versus competition and criticism in some way. Um, yeah, certainly one of the hardest traits, you know, uh, of to manifest as a scientist. But I think the one sine qua non that really illustrates, you know, a man or a woman is a good scientist is if they can say, I don't know. And if they can say your idea might be better and listen to critics. Now you don't want to listen to your critics so much that you lose complete confidence in, in your ideas because scientists are humans as well. And we're credit seeking, jealous, petty, covetous type people, just like any other human being. And just like that, uh, that means that you can become a scientist, even if you have those traits and you can be a scientist if you, like me, weren't great at math as a kid, and you, like me, were not an Einstein as a kid. That's not the, you know, that's not a prerequisite for being a good scientist. But I think you can't be a good scientist and, you know, and believe that you're always right. And I think that stems from, you know, kind of a, a deep-seated insecurity, a narcissism, and those are not traits you want in a in a team and a collaboration. And most science, if not almost all science nowadays, is done by groups of two to 2000 people. So you really can't um, countenance a, a narcissistic, credit seeking, infallible, insecure person. I think those types of people set science back more than they accelerate it, even if they're brilliant. That's the problem. A lot of scientists have been brilliant, also petty. And so you say, well, this guy's petty or she's petty, but she's a great scientist. I feel I'm not willing to make those concessions anymore in my career because life is short and I want to have fun while I'm doing it. I, you know, I'm a public employee and I, I could probably get paid doing, you know, being a podcaster like you and make a ton more money from an Amazon affiliate program than being a public professor at the state employee level in California. Yeah, I definitely think you could. And um, you have so many gifts and skills that you you don't necessarily hear people getting credit for as being a scientist, like public speaking, for example. Yeah. That's something you have to be able to do to be successful. Is you have to be able to convince people of your ideas or at least demonstrate your ideas in a way that would, would make people understand them, right? Yeah. I think in science, it's almost looked down upon if you're persuasive, if you have uh, an ability to to sell an idea. And I think that that's a byproduct, again, of maybe insecurity. Um, I often hear this, you know, I tell my colleagues, I think you are, you know, you have a moral obligation to explain what you do and simple, but not oversimplified. You know, I never dumb down what I'm talking about, but I try to explain it in ways people can understand with analogies, et cetera, which requires a lot of work and preparation. And I try not to say something I haven't written down or thought about before um, in public. But I think most of my colleagues have this uh, moral obligation and a lot of them shirk it and they shirk it because it's not their core competency. And I say, well, yeah, I guess you were born knowing quantum electrodynamic field theory and uh, relativistic perturbation dynamics as a, as a newborn. You know? No, 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 I had to learn that. Okay, so why can't you learn how to communicate what you do in simple videos like I put out or, or conversations with people? Um, don't you think as, a, as a, someone who is you know, uh, benefiting from the largesse of the American taxpayer. That not that your obligation? I mean, imagine if you had a boss, you know, and you're working, James, and, uh, and, and or you have an employee, and you say to them, well, what do you, oh, you can't understand what I'm doing. I'm sorry. You know, no, no, I, like, wait a second, I, I paid you to do this. Well, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing the work. Um, but I don't have to explain it in a way that you can understand. Like, yeah, I've tried that, and I think I got fired by that client. <laughs> like, oh, don't worry, you're paying me. It's totally worth it. I'm doing all this stuff behind the scenes. You don't want to know. It's all this nitty-gritty work. Trust me, you don't want to know. Yeah, so I, I feel like we overdo it. Um, you know, and, and again, this is actually keeping perhaps great talent at bay and and not incorporating the panorama of science. Yeah, it feels unapproachable, doesn't like to me, it really is intimidating. I wasn't a good student. I didn't like learning in school. I wasn't interested in what I was being taught. But now as an adult, I'm learning all of these different things and I'm focusing so much on them that I could have done that with science if I had chosen to or if, right. if it didn't sound so intimidating at first. And as our friend and mentor, you know, James Altucher says, there's no one skill, scientist, podcaster, Amazon marketing, uh, author. There's no one skill. It's tons and tons of skills. I interviewed Ryan Holiday 
uh, last week for my podcast for his new book, Courage is Calling, uh, which came out the same day as my book. So I, I, you know, I have to delay it a little bit before I promote him too much. Um, and, and uh, you know, we were talking about like, writing a book is like running two marathons because the first one is running the marathon. And then the second one is selling the book and marketing it and doing I'm like a lot of people say, I'm good at that first marathon. Let me just do it. And then I'm done with it. And again, they're, they're under this misapprehension that, you know, author is just this one skill set, one tool, you know, but scientists isn't like that either. So maybe you're not great, you know, at the equations of general relativity, James, but maybe, and I know this for a fact, you could communicate your excitement like maybe there is a niche for people that are interested in reconciliation of, of, of you know, harmonization of God and science, let's just say, and communicating that to, to the public. Like, this is really cool. You know, my friend Brian Keating studies, you know, the billion-year-old universe and, and look at this cool, you know, scientific achievement. Isn't it what a work of man, you know, is man that he or she can do such thing? And then on the other hand are, you know, other people that, that are interested but, but not maybe able to even approach a scientist. So, yes, I think that that is, again, it's a limiting belief, and I hope to kind of reduce that in this by, you know, this conversation set that I had in the book, because I think many of the most successful scientists, either it's causative or correlated, I don't, I can't prove it, um, have great interpersonal skills, have great salesmanship, great persuasion skills, and it's not, it shouldn't be a dirty word, it should be something that they're proud of, but for many years, it's been a pejorative, and I think that that's, that hurts two groups, scientists and non-scientists. I've discovered, whether I'm playing tennis or enjoying a day full of competitive chess, that caffeine and sugar highs just don't last. You instead need something that won't spike your blood sugar and cause a crash. I avoid most pre- and post-workout products because they're full of added sugar, natural flavors, and other ingredients I don't approve of, and they end up making me feel worse than if I hadn't taken them at all. That's why this podcast is brought to you by UCAN. UCAN's products are made differently. Their patented superstarch ingredient has the outstanding ability to provide a steady release of energy without spiking blood sugar levels. Controlling blood sugar is the key to optimizing focus, performance, and recovery. Try UCAN's delicious chocolate peanut butter energy bar, cookies and cream energy and protein powder with 19 grams of protein per serving, or grab the ready-on-the-go Edge Pouch. These products will give you the long-lasting benefits of Superstarch to balance your blood sugar and provide long-lasting energy for your workout and your day. Because you're a listener of this podcast, you'll get 20% off your entire order by going to youcan.co slash jamesq. That's ucan.co slash jamesq. Give Youcan a try today. When I first got your book, I was nervous that it would be hard for me to understand. And that wasn't the case at all. It was easy for me to understand. And I filled pages and pages of highlights that were applicable to my life as a as a non-scientist, right? Things yeah. about creativity and confidence and collaboration and public speaking and learning and all of this that I can apply to my regular life. And so I do think that the those micro skills of scientists are applicable to people that are not doing these types of things. Yeah. As you said in the beginning, you know, uh, the word scientist in Russian means someone who was taught. Now, like every single skill, like you're learning to be a pilot, you know, I'm a pilot, you know, so that you're someone who was taught there. Maybe I'm a scientist. Someone. Yeah. Yeah. You're a scientist. <laughs> right. So, um, and, and so everybody can kind of inculcate that notion. You know, it's it's more than just being a student. Like it could say, you know, like a scientist means student because they're being taught. No, it sort of connotes to me active learning that you are a participant. Like to be a good student, like I've got one kid who's very coachable. He's learning a lot about golf and and he just loves to play. And, and you, the coach tells me he can do anything. He can coach him to be, you know, to be anything. And look, if he doesn't do it, you know, I had conversations with him. I'm like, you can't play on the Sabbath. And he's just like, all right, you know, so I won't play in tournaments. I, I won't be Tiger Woods. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably a good thing that you don't turn out like Tiger Woods as much as I respect his golf. Well, that's another thing. We, we don't want these people to be idols, right? And these, these figures are idols. Why? Because he's good at golf. Like, I don't want to be like him. I just want to be good at golf. You know? Right, right. So, so, but the problem is like people look at, you know, these billionaires and I, I've known, you know, several billion, like Ray Dalio. I'm hoping to get him on the show uh, at some point this year or next year. You know, this guy's one of the most successful hedge fund managers in history, wrote many books, is, is a brilliant, wonderful, kind, caring soul, is philanthropist. 
He also lives, you know, he lives a life of, of um, not, I wouldn't say moderation. You know, he has yachts and he has planes and I don't begrudge him at all. He earned that money, presumably legally and fairly. I'm so happy for him. Tragically, he had his son die last year. Like, do you want to trade your life? Do you really want to trade? And, and it's hard to really appreciate that as a non-parent. I'm not saying that with any lack of respect, but it's just like when you have a kid you're never exposed to the joy, to the, to the, to the, you know, and I don't mean biological, you can adopt and that's identical in my terms. It's, it's almost higher in some ways. Like, uh, but on the other hand, you, or, or you could be a mentor and ideological children. Right. Um, and I encourage every, everyone to do that. But, but on the other hand, like, do you want to trade everything? Like, yeah, you want a billion dollars. Would you trade everything? I don't think so. And so I think we have this simplistic notion of, yeah, again, this unitary description of a human being. And it's born of simplicity and laziness on our parts. Cause I just want to say, Oh, you know, James is a brilliant, you know, marketer. He understands like, God, you just do, and you do stuff I can't do, you know, it's true. But like, do I want to trade exactly? You be very careful. And so I like to think that we can take the, the positive traits of these scientists without idolizing them literally, meaning that you're you know, almost covetous of their of their accomplishments or their possessions. And I wanted to, you know, highlight, let's learn from them. Let's be scientists, i.e. active learning students. And here's these micro skills that won't guarantee. So I didn't say like be a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, yeah. Think like one. It's to think like one. So as, as I heard Warren Buffett say, and I don't think he's the paragon of virtue necessarily, or that I care if he is or he isn't, but he said, you know, well, I, I realized as a kid, you know, I couldn't have all the money of, you know, my, now he has all the money of any human being who ever lived, basically, but I could have the virtues of those people. And it's really true. Like you can learn as much from, you know, the, from the, you know, non-scientific information in this book, which is the entirety of the book, as you might, you know, as, as a scientist can. And I'm hoping both the car dealer in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the scientist at, at MIT, they're both going to get something out of this book. So how do you be a good student? Like, what would you suggest? I mean, you are a professor, so you, you've seen good students and, and students who aren't necessarily active learning. Uh, but what, what makes like, someone a good student? How can we be better students? I think there are certain, you know, characteristics um, that uh, someone who's not embarrassed, someone who has, um, uh, there's a Talmudic quote, the easily embarrassed cannot learn. Uh, there's another quote that um, who is a wise person. See, I feel wisdom is the scarcest commodity in all the world. Science, the word science in Latin, as you know, better than anybody means, uh, means knowledge. It doesn't mean wisdom. So what's more important, knowledge or wisdom? Well, Wikipedia has a lot more knowledge than all these Nobel laureates times a billion, literally. <laughs> um, so, but is it wise? It has zero wisdom. I wouldn't trust my neighbor's cat with it. Right. Um, but on the other hand, to have, uh, to have wisdom is very rare. So that's the economic incentive that's our, the the currency of our society now is predicated on wisdom so um so who is wise he who can learn from any man any woman he who is not is humble but so comparing combining these 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 characteristics of of humility but a little bit of swagger like when you learn something, when you grease a landing, James, you're not Chuck Yeager, but there's a little part of you. I finally did it on Monday for the first time, and I've been struggling with takeoffs and landings. It's like, oh, man, I could fly a plane if I could only land and take off. There's so much more to it than that. Like, that's the funniest thing. I thought that that was everything. But, like, I just now finally got it, and it was the best feeling ever. But do you know what? I had to do dozens and dozens of not great landings where I basically my instructor had to take over for me and I'm like, oh man, maybe I should never fly again. Like this is embarrassing or not safe or maybe I'm never going to get this. And he said, maybe maybe you're too stupid to be a pilot. But do you know what he told me on Monday? He said, wow, you're going to be a great pilot. You're really smart. I'm like, no one's ever called me smart before. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's but true. I, I think you're, but I didn't yeah. give up. That's exactly it. I didn't give that's up. That's the tenacity. So it's listening to critics. It's it's um, it's tenacity. It's resilience, like you're talking about. It's the uh, cultivation of the history. I feel like history is very undervalued. Most of my students, they don't know anything about the history of my field or, or physics. And I think it's to our detriment. Like you may have, did you ever take physics in high school or college, James? Okay. Mm -hmm. So what they do, you know, they have this thing like an inclined plane, you know, which is just like a ball rolling down an inclined plane. I'm like, oh my God, it's so boring. It's boring for me. But if you took a step back and said, well, you know who the first person to ever do that was? It was Galileo. 
Do you know when he mentioned that you should uh, put something on an on a inclined slanted slope to slow down the effects of gravity so that you could actually measure something with the timepieces that were available back then, like your pulse. You know, there was no Apple watch, <laughs> you know, there was no Samsung uh, Galaxy watch. Instead, no, it was it was your pulse and a, a grains of sand or, or, or drops of water in a, in a jar. Okay, so that's how they measure time. So you had to slow down the, the, the velocities involved in measuring. So he, he devised, okay, that's kind of cool. You know, maybe take a detour in the history. Like, like you just assume maybe that they had watches and clocks. No, there had to be a day when there was no watch and the day after where there was a so that came long after Galileo. So how did he do all this? And then what was the outcome? Well, he put it in a book and that book was called The Dialogue. Oh yeah, what was that about? Well, it had to do with the relative motion of planets and, and objects on earth and comparing the two and saying that just as this ball moves in an accelerated way, so does the earth. What does it move around the sun? Okay, that's pretty interesting. I believe that because people told me that now, um, but back then it was heretic, literally heretical. And he was imprisoned and threatened with execution and torture by the Catholic Church. And then, well, did he have reason to be fearful? Yes, because 30 years late, earlier, Giordano Bruno was literally burned at the stake for suggesting that stars were other worlds. It's just like, now you're kind of interested, right? Like, now, like, this ball moving down a plane is, is kind of, like, fascinating. And so I feel like we have to, as they say, teach the controversy. Like, all physics evolved in some kind of a milieu. All aviation came out of like solving these problems. Like, did you know that there was another guy in addition to the to the Wright brothers who was paid by the government, this guy Langley, Samuel Langley. And then like, he had this totally, uh, you know, different notion of how a plane should be devised. And and the, what, what was the killer insight, not killer, the saving insight of the Wright, it was like the propeller. And, and, the, and the Wright brothers had a, had a flexible craft that wasn't, uh, you know, it had imperfections actually, where he was like, everything had to be exactly perfect or it's not going to fly. And that was the funniest thing that I've learned about flying, like going through uh, powered on stalls and uh, power off stalls. Like the plane actually wants to stay in the air. Yeah. If I just get out of the way, it will do that, you know? Yeah, it's stable. And, and, uh, and, and looking at those different regions or looking at like a bumblebee, you know, according to, as they say, according to the laws of physics, shouldn't be able to fly just aerodynamically. And you look at it, it's like, it doesn't have an airfoil for its wings. They're just flats, you know, and then, but somehow it manages to do it. And then you see like a dragonfly and it flies backwards. So I think it's, uh, I think it's, you know, to me, the most important thing to be is to have this combination of curiosity, not just passion, you know, as they say in the book, passion is like a spark, but curiosity is like the fuel. Like today we're talking uh, on October 13th and William Shatner just went into space today on a, on a, 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 a Blue Origin flight and good, good for him. He's my he's my co-star. Uh, I appeared in one TV episode in my life so far called Unexplained with William Shatner about the moon of all things. And, and he was my co-star. So he should have taken you with him, right? <laughs> So, yeah, I should have gone with him. I would love to do that. But he uh, not the first, second, third flight. I'm waiting for the 112th flight. That's when I'm going to try to scrape my pennies together. But but I think what's, what's so fascinating is is to look at um, having those those traits of of you need a little bit of courage. You cannot like if you just gave up, you won't have resiliency. Right. So you need a little bit of courage and then you get these incentives. So the passion can can spark the, the flame, but the curiosity, like, can I get better? And that's what you kept asking yourself. Can I get better? And what do I need to do to get better? And curiosity is a powerful, powerful drug. And it's a kosher drug. And we should use it and take it as much as we can. Because as the author of the uh, two, two forwards, or one forward written by two uh, co-authors, one is our friend James Altucher, and the other is uh, Barry Barish, winner of the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics. And he said this curiosity has all these negative connotations, like Curious George. He's kind of a pain in the ass. Uh, you know, curiosity killed the cat. Uh, that sounds dangerous. Like, why would anyone want to kill a cat? Um, you know, like, <laughs> whereas the motto of my YouTube channel is ABC, always be curious. So I think curiosity is sustainable fuel that will take you through the down, inevitable down, you know, uh, uh, falls that you'll have to have on the way to success. Because there, James, there is no success without failure. That's a paradox. There is no success that didn't come along with failure. And so you might think of it as like, you know, one of my friends says the every human being when they're born has a quota of how many flat tires they're going to get in their life. Like there's just no way around it. You know, so like that's why when I get a flat tire, I'm like, yeah, this is great. Like one more <laughs> off the lip. Maybe that's the last one. I don't know. But if you look at it, 
yeah, we're always going to have setbacks, always going to have pitfalls, expect them. And I think in that case, it will help you along with this curious, curious, relentless curiosity, help you be sustained to get you to maybe not the promised land, but as close as you can possibly get. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like learning is a skill. There's skills within learning too. Yes. And one of those is just understanding that there are going to be times when you're pushing through your comfort zone that you feel like you're not making any progress at all and you want to give up. Just understand that when you're learning something new, that's going to happen eventually. Just You just have to wait. It's going to be there it, eventually, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't had one thing I learned that, of, that I didn't eventually say, what am I doing? Why am I embarrassing myself? Why am I trying to become a chess master in my 30s? Like when people are doing it at age 11, like what am mm-hmm. I doing? Yeah, exactly. But you don't give up. Like you, and, and you're also looking for the joy in it. Like, like James, you might think every day, like I'm contemplating the cosmos and even these theological things that almost none of my colleagues think about, but you know, I'm getting closer to God by seeing his handiworks and I'm, I'm experiencing this existential, I'm thinking about like, why is this contractor in Chile, like trying to rip me off and, and get, you know, more money for this, uh, this concrete pour, you know, whatever. And, or this other thing, you know, here or there. And, and it's just like, it never ends. Um, and, but every now and then you do get a chance to think about, and, or in my case, speak about, I love to speak publicly on my YouTube channel on my podcast, et cetera. I love to speak. I love to write. I love to assemble these great intellects. And if I hadn't had a little bit of swagger to think I could do it, um, I would have missed this opportunity. And if I missed it, that's bad for Brian Keating. I would have lacked, you know, the opportunity to talk to these nine Nobel laureates and have one write the foreword and have, you know, two or three be great friends. And, you know, I would have, I would have, it would have hurt me, but I also feel like it would have hurt the world, you know, and that's why in the first week of the book was out, not anymore, just the publisher wouldn't allow it. I wanted to make it free. And they were like, oh, you can't do that. No one's, because what you get for free, you don't value. And you have to another, pay for it. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to earn it. You have to feel like you had some insight. That's why I don't like to give away books. People are like, are you just some cheap guy? No, no, no. Because if I give it to you, you're going to treat, it's like Jerry Seinfeld has a joke. Like, what do you call a, what is a business card? A business card is me asking you, James, will you throw this away from me? You know, <laughs> like, like nobody cares, but nobody throws away a book. Um, but Nobody reads a book if they get it for free. I, I rarely read books I get for free. And I always read books I had to pay for. So I wanted to make it. So we made it 99 cents for the first week. And now it's back to regular 9.99 or whatever. But I do feel like the, me having um, timidity, fear, um, and not overcoming that and going into the impossible, as I say, uh, that would have been a detriment, not just for me, but mainly for the, you know, hopefully tens of thousands of people who will get the benefit from this book. And again, I don't care if you get it from your library or not. I just want as many people to read it, to unlock and to overcome these limiting beliefs that can hold them back from contributing to the grand panorama of whatever field they're in, scientists or not. Yeah. And I'll, I'll leave some time at the end for you to, to tell us where we can find this book and I'll link to it in the show notes for this episode at quandall.com slash Keating. That's quandall.com slash K-E-A-T-I-N-G. But is there something you're learning right now that you're on this sort of path real time right now of, of learning? Yeah. I mean, for me, the uh, so I am uh, an experimental physicist. So it is very different from mm, some of the people in this book are theoretical physicists. They think about you know, properties of black holes, which are completely inaccessible, except to the human mind or mathematics, um, et cetera. Um, whereas I'm actually building telescopes with my colleagues in Chile or Antarctica uh, or launching them on rockets to space. And so I'm in, involved in the day-to-day, you know, kind of construction of devices to provide data against which we can test certain models and theories of how the universe originated, how it's evolving, what it's made of, how old it is, and if it's ever going to die. And those are really key questions, some of which we talk about in the book. And so I'm, I'm trying to provide uh, you know, essential you know, data that can be crisp and, and test for these particular properties. Now, um, on the other hand, I'm not a theorist. So I'm not coming up with new ideas of how gravity could work or how particles at the subatomic scale might work. So that's not my profession, but I have, because of these interactions, started to try to get you know a second PhD almost, which is to understand and become more adept at the theory. Not Maybe not coming up with new theory, but really thinking of what I call being an assayer, which is someone who in medieval times would take 
something that someone claimed was a piece of rock and they would scrape or a piece of gold and they would have this special rock called a touchstone and they would scrape the gold, a purported gold on the touchstone. And if it left the right kind of mark, you could t- say it was gold. And if it didn't, the guy who brought it in, you know, the king would cut his head off. Right. So it was a very important job. So testing something doesn't require that I own any gold at all. It just requires I own this particular chunk of rock called a, a touchstone. So I view myself as playing that role. And for that, I have to learn a lot of the theory. And so for me, that's a new skill set. And I'm just now, you know, kind of hitting not the, I wouldn't say the hockey stick part of the learning curve, uh, but I'm, but I'm certainly it's, it's challenging me in a way that, you know, it might not sound like such a, oh, you're a physicist. So you're learning type of physics A and after knowing type of physics B. No, but there is different as, you know, being a biologist is from being a mathematician. You know, they have some things in common, but not as much as you might think. Yeah. And is there anything that you could, you know, going through this now and a shortcut you could share with us as far as learning this new new endeavor like a, or of what you'd find to be useful? You know, for me, it's it's the kind of relentless, good natured essence of of questioning. Like you can ask somebody questions all you want. And, you know, when you take your uh, flight exam, you'll talk to this you know, designated examiner and they'll say, do you have any questions? And you could sit there for like an hour and ask them questions. And, you know, why are you doing that? Are you stalling or whatever? Are you trying to show how smart you are? Yeah. So I think doing the good natured question, like out of curiosity, but first doing some homework yourself. Like I hate, there's this column uh, in, in uh, Parade Magazine, which is the most widely distributed newspaper on earth because it comes out in every you know newspaper except for the like the New York Times or whatever. Uh, it's this glossy little thing that comes out every Sunday. And there's a column by this woman, Mar- um, of, uh, Maria Vosavant, I think is her name. And she's reported to have like a 225 IQ. So a little bit, you know, lower than, than yours and mine and uh no uh, only a so, little and then, then it's, like people will write her questions and they'll say like you know what's the reason that like um a, a bag of potato chips is uh is so puffy and expanded when i'm in denver or when i open it on an airplane i'm just like oh my god like you could google that like why are you wasting your this this genius is time i don't think she, you know i think anyone who says like oh i'm a member of mensa like i think that that's hiding some some deep level of non-intelligence at some level uh, but anyway uh the point being uh because they'll let in anybody i think who was in the ivy league which is stupid even though i went i was at the ivy league. but um but the point being you know i think i think to to be um, to be humble, to have this, what they call epistemic humility, like you're searching for truth, but you're really doing, it. you're not doing it for some ulterior motive or to get some, you know, uh, guest on my podcast or like, you're just curious. I want to talk. I want to learn something. I want to share the conversation this day and age, you know, as James, um, the other James in my life, besides you, uh, points out, uh, that, that, you know, we should record like these conversations, you know, not like taping secretly, but like for posterity, because it allows intelligent ideas and conversations to scale in a way benefiting from the so-called network effect, which is exponential um, because, you know, two of your listeners can tell two of their friends and that can keep going forever. Uh, And so in that way, I hope to spread the word that yes, the most important skill I've found is to have this type of, of, of humility with a little bit of swagger, you know, that, that like, I belong here. I may not be, you know, chess master or whatever, but I belong here because I learned the history of like, I'm actually not that good at chess. I used to be okay, but James is always like, Oh, we should play and put on Jay's like, Oh, we'll put on Twitter. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I just want to have fun. And, uh, but, but fun is an aspect of curiosity because when you're, when you have curiosity and you're like, Oh, like, why did I respond this way? Why did my opponent respond that way? Uh, it makes you curious and it, and it satisfies, gives you a little bit of, of, of uh, incentivization to keep going and improve. And I think that's the ultimate goal that I'm trying to achieve. I love it. And I think you're doing a great job. And um, where can we learn more about you and, and buy your book and uh, find your YouTube channel and all of that? All right. Yeah. So um, probably the best way since most of your listeners are listening on some audio device is to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify. Just type in Brian Keating, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Keating, K-Eating. And uh, I have two podcasts. One is uh, called Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner. And that's just all the interviews. So you can get basically the book for free. 
I put a link to the website in the chat box here, James, so you can put that in the show notes at quandell.com slash Keating. And that will basically, it's the whole book. It's all the illustrations I had custom made. Yeah, the illustrations are awesome. They're so good. Yeah, that's my friend Ray Braun uh, up in Seattle. He does just incredible, uh, incredible artwork, custom made. But the conversations for him to actually understand how to draw that must have been very interesting because to, un- to be able to draw, you had to kind of know what you were drawing in a way, yes. right? Yes, he's very curious. Very, He actually did a book, uh, the way I found him, is from my friend Stephen C. Meyer, who is uh, one of the directors at the Discovery Institute, also in Seattle. And uh, he wrote a book called uh, called Return of the God Hypothesis that I actually provided a blurb for in the back. And uh, Stephen's a Christian apologist. He's um, uh, he, he looks at uh, you know, scientific reasons to believe in the existence of God. And uh, I love the illustration. I said, who did you do your illustrations? He told me about Ray. And then since then, we started collaborating. So, yeah, it took a lot of time, but he's really good. Um, so I, I put the, the uh, a link in the, uh, you can put it in the show notes. So I have two podcasts. Uh, Into the Impossible is my main podcast where I interviewed these laureates to begin with. But I also interview you know, billionaires and brainiacs and and uh, and comedians, stand-up comedians, and, and also their producers. Jay has also been a guest on my podcast, James Altucher. But I've interviewed, you know, the the four billionaires, five astronauts, including uh, just yesterday, Chris Hadfield, uh, Major Tom and space guitarist, uh, about his new book. And it, it's been a lot of fun. To, so those podcasts are probably the, the quickest way to get there. On YouTube, just Dr. Brian Keating is my YouTube channel, and I always appreciate subscribers. And then, yeah, the book is available. Uh, I, you know, I do love the hard copies themselves or the Kindle copy. The Audible is great too. I read the intro and a couple chapters of that. Yeah, that it's well worth it's well worth getting the physical copy of this book because the drawings are so great, and it really. I think you did a great job describing the history of what made this person a Nobel Prize winner and what their achievements were to science in each chapter. So that was really cool. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. This was fun. And uh, I just can't wait to see how you continue to contribute to educating us on the and demystifying the science and making it possible for us. Yes, I want to make it possible for everybody to go into the impossible. And I want to thank you, James. Uh, you are really uh, a special soul. And I always look forward to seeing your posts online, your podcast, and uh, especially on Instagram and Twitter. It's just, it, it tickles me. But my favorite thing is when you go on James's show. So may you have many happy returns there, my, my friend. Well, thank you very much.